0: Lally wanted to tell someone his story, this we both knew. He was telling me his story piecemeal, disjointed, with limited connection and coherency from one story to another. He was saying that I had to write his story, but he wasn't really telling it, not yet. I was struggling to understand what he wanted, whether he really wanted to speak about the past. When he did talk about his time in Auschwitz, his voice was often strangely clinical and devoid of emotion, The only time he seemed to lose control was when he spoke about Gita. Many times he would start to say something, pause and look away or call one of his doggies to come so he could pat her, calm himself and switch to talking about something else. Then one day as we sat there with him, as so often circling the story, touching upon it and then quickly darting away, something occurred to me. Lally seemed comfortable talking with me, welcomed me warmly, was indignant if he felt too long had gone between visits. But he was the one doing all the talking, and now our meetings had taken on a strangely artificial feeling. It was as though we were stuck in the lobby, twiddling our thumbs, waiting for something to begin. He'd asked me very little about myself, and I had responded very blandly to his questions. I told him the names of my husband and children, told him about my work. The most intimate detail I'd given him was my mother's maiden name, back on the first day we'd met. No personal details had flowed from me to him, and looking back I realised that when he'd asked, I'd shied away from volunteering more than the most basic of details. He'd asked a little, but I'd clammed up in response. It wasn't that I was keeping anything from him, but in hindsight I had misread his insistence on needing to tell his story quickly so he could be with Gita as a lack of interest in anything else. I had managed to create an atmosphere when we were together that gave him a sense of safety. He was definitely comfortable with me. He both greeted and fair me with a kiss on both cheeks, insisting i tell him when I would next return.
1: Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading, and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today, I'm talking to Heather Morris about her new book, Stories of Hope, finding inspiration in everyday lives. Heather, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Gregor. It's a pleasure once again to be talking to you.
1: Stories of Hope is, I guess it's part memoir, part reflection on your life as an author, part essay on the art of listening. But it's also a, a kind of a companion to your two previous books, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, and also to Silka's journey, most of all, it's a book full of ideas. What did you want to communicate with this book, Stories of Hope?
0: Well, first and foremost, I need anyone listening and then subsequently reading the book to know that I am not a qualified counsellor, psychotherapist, or in any way do I bring professional qualifications to writing the stories that I've written in here. All I bring are my own experiences. So first and foremost, yeah, need to get that out of the way. Look, yes, you're right. It's only part memoir because there's no way I want you to know everything about me. Um, and that was my biggest challenge when I was asked to write this. Well, hey, do I have to talk about me? And I was told, yeah, you do. Oh, okay. So <laughs> that was um, that was my bigger challenge. It had nothing to do with you know telling you more about Lully and Gita and Silka. Hey, that's easy for me. But... Uh, since, particularly since Lully's story came out and I continue to, to travel around talking to people, and not so much right now, it occurred to me that people no longer wanted to hear about the book because they've already read it. What the interest was in was my relationship to Lully and how I got his story and what I did with it and the years in between my writing it and being with him, or writing it as a screenplay. That seemed to be of more interest to people. I didn't quite get it, but that's okay. I'm happy to go down that path. So yes, it all is all those things, but from it, well, it, it, it occurred to me that maybe there is something that I can write about with regard to reminding people of the art of listening and the simple lessons in life that you do not need any qualifications to be able to, well, both talk about and learn from.
1: Stories of Hope talks a lot about active listening. In it, you say, and I quote here, I had no qualifications for this. What I did possess, though I didn't think about it at the time, is my ability to listen, truly actively listen. What is active listening and why is it important?
0: My interpretation of acting listening, which um, it kind of coincides with what people like Brene Brown and other professionals who are qualified to talk about this uh, would say, It is when you listen to somebody who is talking to you and you do not go into your own head to be looking for a response, that you actually concentrate on what that person is saying to you, not, well, when can I give my two bobs worth? When can I say something? I've got an opinion on what they're saying. Because when you're thinking about your response and you're internally moving away from what they're saying to you, well, you're not really listening. You're paying lip service to the person who's in front of you. Actively listening, you shut your head down, you shut up, and you hear the words, you look at the body language of the person in front of you talking to you. You will pick up everything that is not only being said, but not being said. And it is quite beautiful when you do that. And, of course, we don't do it all the time. Gosh, maybe look 5 or 10% of the day, that's enough. But when it matters, when it matters, shut up and listen.
1: Now, if you can take us back for a moment to the tattooist of Auschwitz. And when you first met Lale Sokolov, you didn't take any notes, nor did you make any recordings of your conversations. You just listened.
0: Oh, look, there was uh, no question about how I was going to approach my time with Lale. He was a man, he was 87 when I met him, and he'd uh, just lost his wife of over 60 years. Now, I knew from my uh, experience working in a hospital, that when you were talking to people who were under some kind of trauma or had something tragic in their lives, that if you wrote notes while you were talking to them or listening to them, it was a distraction. Absolutely, you cannot engage with somebody if they're trying to tell you something and you're scribbling down notes. I know this goes totally against the grain that all journalists are taught, but uh, for me, that's the only way I can actually hear what is being said and not being said. Now, with regard to even a recording machine, having that sitting on the table between us, that would have been a distraction too. I know that. Not only for Lully, but for me. I'd be wondering, wow, is, is the thing actually still recording? Do I need to check the tape? All these interruptions that you, can, you have in your own internal head. So I did nothing. Uh, it meant that I had to race home, jump on my computer, and then recall everything that he'd said. But because I had listened to him, that way it wasn't that difficult. My difficulty was with Lally that he was using names in places that I'd never heard before. And to phonetically try and write down these uh, names that I'd heard, particularly as they related to, you know, the, the German uh, Nazis and other prisoners from Poland and countries that are foreign to me.
1: When you were researching The Tattooist of Auschwitz, you had the privilege of talking directly to Lale, But when it came to Silka's journey... Your research consisted of talking to her friends, visiting her home and the places she frequented, using professional researchers as well, and also talking to Lale, who is in fact the one who first introduced you to Silka. How did those two different research experiences show themselves in your writing experience, but also in the writing itself?
0: Well, of course, the writing experience was vastly different, having been able to get the words directly from Lale's mouth about his, uh, his time in Auschwitz-Birkenau and to be able to write almost in his voice because they are his words in my book. I know when I was writing it or adapting it from the screenplay into the novel, I was sitting on a mountain in California in the middle of winter, just myself and two squirrels. And he was there the whole time. And I know many, many times I'd be writing words and I'd hear this voice on my shoulder saying, now that's not how I told you, write it this way. And so, yes, I had him. And I had him who then, he read the drafts, many drafts of the screenplay. And so he would correct me. And he did correct those versions. And I never had that with Silka. And I was researching Lully. Of course, I did have also access to many other beautiful, lovely Holocaust survivors here in Melbourne and also in Sydney. And they spoke to me. And I had their words. Uh, With regard to the professional research, yes, that came from professionals in Europe. But that's just facts. That's just you know, clarifying and confirming what it was that I had already found out, and that's really important. Don't get me wrong. But with Silka, well, I was never going to go to Russia. Okay, I thought about it, and when I got a professional researcher in Moscow and I talked to her, everything was in Russian or in um, other version of uh, Soviet language. I was always going to need her anyway, and what good could it be for me sitting in a museum or an archive with her? She could do that fine. When I decided it might be nice to go to Vorkuta, which is the gulag where Silka was, and I wrote to her saying, look, is it worth my coming over and making the journey with you to Vorkuta? And she wrote back saying, oh, please don't ask me to go there. You know, it's the coldest goddamn place on earth, and it is a four-day train trip from Moscow to get there no real accommodation there, and then another four-day return. So we relied on all the documents that had been brought down from Borkuta to the archives in Moscow. But there was no way I was going to pass up on the opportunities to go back into Slovakia, to Koshita, to the city where Silke had lived for many decades, and sit with these amazing friends and neighbours and hear from them firsthand about the beautiful woman who was Cecilia Kovakova, to me, Silka Klein.
1: Was there a moment when you felt that you'd found Silka's voice?
0: Um, yes, absolutely. And it came in the strangest place, actually. It was, well, of course, it was helped by talking to people who knew her. And they all knew little bits about her, all quite different. And it was quite wonderful sitting in a room with about 20 Neighbors of hers, and one of them saying this, and I've got two translators there with me. It was hilarious because they're all talking at once, and my poor translators are trying to grab the snippets which are important. But these people got caught up in talking about Silke themselves and saying, "Oh, I didn't know that," as they're sharing what they knew. The Slovakian authorities came on board, and they were really, really helpful, allowing me access to documents about Silke and her family, birth, deaths and marriage certificates. I got to sit in the offices and read these amazing documents. They're all written in journals, these huge big journals. They're not online. And to be able to see them and then trace her family and where she came and her family. It was quite fascinating. And that's where I learned about her. The actual uncovering of this young girl, Silka, that came when we went to the town of Badishov, where she had lived and where she was taken from. And aside from being able to see her, her school records there, which we were showing, I also met people there who knew her family. They were elderly men, and they had also spoken to their fathers and their parents who had known her parents. And one of them showed me a photo. And this is where I learned about Silka, the young girl. It was a photo take her birthday. We think she's either 14 or 15. She's sitting in a car with her family. Now, it's an open-top vehicle, the sort of thing you used to see Hitler driving around in, totally open-top. In the back is Silke's mother and her two sisters. And in the front, it's pointed out to me, is Silke and her father. And it's Silke behind the steering wheel because she insisted on being behind the steering wheel because she drove that family she was the force in that family and the strong determined young girl you can see it on her face sitting there this is who i am and that enabled me to know that there was that strength back then that enabled her to survive these two horrific evil periods in history
1: in the process of writing you met and talked to a lot of people many of them with stories to tell aside from those of lale gita and silka Does anyone in particular stand out for you? And then might we encounter them in perhaps your next book?
0: Oh, yes, you just might. There have been many, Greg. Here's the thing. Uh, Some amazing storylines have come to me. And um, some of them, because I haven't got the time and let's face it, I don't have the years left in me either to be able to sort of stockpile them and come back to them. Let's just say that uh, there have been several that have been passed on, and uh, you will hear about not from me, but from others. But yes, there is one story, and in Stories of Hope, I give you a little teaser at the back. Here, I, I want to introduce you to the three sisters. They were 15, 17, and 19. They were from Slovakia, from Vranov, the town that Gita came from. And I found out about them. Early hours of one morning last year in South Africa, I was there at a book festival and I returned late to my hotel room. Yeah, I'd had a couple of wines. It's a wine region. It's called Franschhoek.
1: It's a source of inspiration, isn't
0: it? Pretty much. But um, I didn't need inspiration from the email that I read from a man who lives in Canada. And he wrote telling me that he was visiting his mother in Tel Aviv. At the Toronto airport, he picked up a copy of my book and took it with him to read on the plane. He brought it out the day after he arrived and left it on the coffee table to go back to reading it. And his mother walked past, looked down at it and commented, that must be about Lully and Geeta. She looked at the number on Geeta's arm and she looked at the number on her own. Three away. Her sister's is two away. She remembered Lully tattooing her number. Gita had visited her and her sisters in Israel back in the 70s and 80s. So, of course, she recognized the title and that number on that arm. Now, that was enough to have me immediately responding. And uh, by the time I'd got from Franchuk to Cape Town, we'd had a phone conversation as well with this beautiful 93-year-old lady in Tel Aviv. A few days later, I was in Johannesburg. And I was talking to my publishers in London saying, I have to go to Israel. I need to talk to this lady and she's begging me to come. I'll go back to Melbourne in a couple of days and arrange to go there. And Kate, my publisher in London, said, no, you won't. You'll go there directly from Johannesburg. We're rerouting you. I complained, but Kate, I've run out of clean knickers. She said, I don't care. We'll send you clean knickers to the hotel we're putting you up in. And yes, within 48 hours, I uh, arrived bleary-eyed in Tel Aviv, no language, no money, not knowing where I was. And that began this journey that I now have with Livia, Magda, and Sibi. Livia and Magda are still alive in 94 and 96. I was back there in Israel in January, spending more time with them. And I am going to be so, so delighted to tell this amazing story because it's just not a Holocaust story. The story of these three girls who survived the Holocaust, yeah, nearly three years in Birkenau, got back to Slovakia only to be rejected by the country that they were born in. So what does young girls do or young women? Well, they go into the forests of Czechoslovakia and they train to be freedom fighters, don't they? Find their way to... Palestine, smuggled on a boat, each with a gun in their pocket.
1: I think you might be giving a bit too much away there, Heather.
0: Yeah, I never mind giving away my stories. I'm always happy to say they have happy endings up front. And, um, yeah, because there's so much more to the little bit I've told you. They're just teasers.
1: Do you ever reflect on this good fortune you've had, this confluence of time, place and people, people who are ready to talk? Does that... Ever make you think how fortunate you were to be in that position at that time, in that place with those uh, people?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, today, even more so, and maybe not so, it's been such a busy two and a half years for me. And I suspect I haven't actually taken the time to do as much reflecting as I should have and I could have. But I know that this afternoon, Prior to me then, linking back into the UK this evening, I am going to go and just sit quietly and reflect on Lully and Geeta and Silke and Lottie and all these amazing people. Every survivor I ever met said they survived first and foremost because they were lucky. And that's the same word I use to describe the good fortune I have had in being able to meet amazing people. And not just the people whose stories I've told, I it's people like you, and uh, other people around the world, um, you know, to, to sit on a radio station for half an hour and chat to Graham Norton. Amazing. These, these are experiences that should never have come my way if I hadn't have said yes to having that cup of coffee with a friend who introduced me to Lully all those years ago.
1: Just talking more broadly for a moment, there are people everywhere who have stories to tell, stories that may have the power to change lives as they did for you. They might be parents or siblings, friends, neighbours, colleagues. How can we as individuals, do you think, encourage people to tell their stories?
0: You know, I think we really have an obligation to, and you're quite right. We all think that we're just ordinary. There's nothing special about us. You know, Can I tell you, I don't think I've met anyone in all my 67 years of life who didn't have some part of their life that could be considered remarkable that there is not something in their life which is not ordinary but extraordinary. And we just don't appreciate it and we don't accept it. From from my great-grandfather to him, he thought he just had this ordinary life. But he didn't. He had so many remarkable periods in it. And I've written about a couple of them. Just find the opportunity to give people that that reason to talk. Now, when it comes to talking to your elders, and here's what... Why I'm drumming home that more than anything, because so many people have said to me in many, many places, I regret that I did not take the time to ask my grandmother, my mother, my father, my aunt about their life. And they now regret it because they're no longer with them. And now I'm hearing, I am going to ask my grandparent something about themselves. And I did an interview into London just last night, and the interviewer there said, I have one of my four grandparents left. I don't know the other three's story, but as sure as hell when I can get out of here and go and visit my grandmother in the nursing home, she said, I'm gonna ask her, tell me about your life. And he asked for, um, well, how do I make that happen? What's an in? So here's a tip for here's an in. If it is an elderly person that you have known for a long time, probably a family member, think back, is there anything in their home, on their mantelpiece, on their bookshelf, that has been there all your life and you've never paid it any attention it might be a knickknack. Why don't you pick it up and ask that person, where did you get this? Does it mean anything? Is there a story behind it? All you need is that in. And I think you'll find it. But you've just got to want to do it. And I can't see any reason why any of you wouldn't want to do it. It's just wonderful hearing stories. Come on, before we learned to read and write, we lived by stories. Let's get back to storytelling.
1: Heather, I think you might just have prompted... Scores, if not armies, of people to do exactly that. Thanks very much for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast.
0: As always, Greg, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me.
1: Thank you, Heather. I've been talking to Heather Morris about her new book, Stories of Hope, Finding Inspiration in Everyday Lives. It's published by Echo and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening.